Hey tennis fans and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre, and two weeks have now come and gone from the Wimbledon Championships. Novak Djokovic winning a record-tying 20th Grand Slam title, also his sixth win at the All-England Club, while Ashley Barty won her second career Grand Slam and first at Wimbledon. And uh, we're here this week to recap all the action. And our guest this week to help break it all down, played college tennis, spent eight years covering the sport on Tennis.com, and now works as a freelance reporter and creates content for Universal Tennis. Welcome back to Matchpoint Canada, Nina Pantic. It is great to be back. Thanks for having me, Mike. And well, let's let's uh, let's get right into it and start with the men's finals, since that is uh, fresh on all of our minds. Um, the expected result, really, and despite uh, Matteo Berrettini pulling out uh, the first set, just wasn't nearly enough to stop Djokovic. What did you make of the men's final and what we saw for both players today? I think Mateo did a phenomenal job of making it interesting. I don't think he had much of a chance, just given how Novak's been playing, how much more experience he has, how amazing he is on the grass. It just seems an insurmountable task to beat him. And kind of how it used to feel with Rafa at the French Open, it feels like that's what Wimbledon is for Novak. So I think Mateo did an amazing job of like making it very interesting and exciting, at least the first set, um, maybe a little bit in the third set, but uh Novak really to control which is exactly what we expected in terms of you saying you feel that way with Novak on grass I feel that way about Novak on any surface now it seems and it might be tied at 20 majors apiece between Roger Rafa and Djokovic but it doesn't feel tied to me the way that Djokovic has been playing um I don't want to wade into the goat debate here because I feel like that's best left for hopefully years down the road but it does feel like the world number one has already really distanced himself from the other two in terms of career accomplishments How do you feel about uh, Novak compared to uh, his other two in the big three there? I agree. I agree in a way because one of the big things he has going for him is that he's younger, right, than both of them. So it just feels like he has a few more, maybe many more years left. So it it seems that that the the GOAT debate, we're not starting, but it just seems kind of impossible for it not to be Novak. To make the 20 this quickly, it just feels like he was on 17 like a minute ago. It feels like it's been... And they went a whole pandemic, and I don't know how this has happened so quickly. <laughs> Some people yeah. are thriving in the pandemic. Novak's one of them, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he, it just seems like he's thriving at all times. He's won eight of the last 12 majors, and that's actually dating back to, I think we remember, he he had the wrist troubles and that quarterfinal exit it was to Marco Cecchinato. Everybody was concerned what's going wrong with Novak Djokovic. And since that point, uh, winning eight of the last 12 Grand Slams, 21 and 0 at the majors this season, it's it's just staggering. And, you know, I, probably a handful of years ago, you're thinking, well, what's a realistic total for him to get to? And the talk I'm seeing now is like, can he pass 25, 26? Ryan Harrison posted a poll the other day. Like, do you think Djokovic can end up with 27 or more majors. Is, is that feasible over the next few seasons if he keeps dominating like this? Ooh, 27. I don't know. That, that yeah, seems that's a, a little, <laughs> it seems outrageous, but 20 seemed outrageous, right? And like 14 when Pete Sampras did it seemed insane. So I guess everything changes and, and Novak is certainly capable of pushing the boundaries. Um, I'm most curious what you guys think of him eating the grass. That's like such a unique tradition <laughs> he has. At least it's grass. I mean, it probably tastes a lot better than clay or, uh, I don't know, some yeah. dust on a hard court. 
Yeah, I, I don't I don't mind it. I'm I'm fine with it. It was it was more striking to me when he did it, I think a couple of seasons ago, particularly in that 2019 final when it was in a sense him against the crowd, everybody pulling for Federer for another major there, Federer having the match points and uh Djokovic pulling through there. Obviously, this final more straightforward despite the first set which you talked about. I, I wanted to discuss Matteo Berrettini just as a whole a little bit because the past couple of seasons, obviously, he's made great inroads. But when we were talking about other players to, you know, make their maiden Grand Slam, we were thinking of probably it happening for a player like maybe a Sasha Zverev before him or an Andre Rublev. And here, Matteo Berrettini just wraps up this phenomenal grass court season, wins Queens Club, and and gets a set off of Djokovic uh, in the final of Wimbledon. Is, is it realistic for him to be a future slam champion? And, and is it possible for him to do it maybe on other surfaces as well? Absolutely. I think the grass suits his game, given how big of a power hitter he is. And I'm going to plug universal, universal tennis here for a second, because, mm. you know, after the top four seeds, our, our insights algorithm kind of had him at number five as most likely to win. And that's okay. Obviously fifth place is pretty far behind Novak, who was obviously the heavy favorite. But that's pretty high, and it was partially because of his Queen's Club run. I mean, that was an impressive week for him. He's won a few tournaments this year. His issue is injuries. He had a really big one after the Australian Open. I think it was an ab injury. I mean, that's a problem if he can't serve when his serve is so huge. Uh, They call him the hammer. Like, the way he plays is so aggressive. I think hard courts seems like a good place for him. So maybe Australia or the U.S. Open where he made the semifinals a few years ago. Clay, he's won titles on clay as well. I mean, this is the player that could definitely win a slam. Will he win 27? Probably not. But <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely see him as a future Wimbledon contender. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, also U.S. Open semis. He was in the quarterfinals uh, just the other month at Roland Garros as well. Um, another player made the quarterfinals. And we'll also talk about another who made the semifinals. Have to ask you about our two Canadians who produced uh, career runs for them at uh, Grand Slams. Denis Shapovalov reached his maiden Grand Slam semifinal before falling to Novak Djokovic. And Felix Ojealiasim made his first quarterfinal with kind of a signature win over Sasha Zverev in the round of 16. What do you think the next step is for these two in in their progression? And are they guys who can maybe become mainstays like inside the top 10 even? It's so interesting because there was a moment with Dennis where I thought, is he going to win Wimbledon? Like there was a moment in that, I think it was the first set against Novak where I thought to myself, this could be, this could happen. Uh, So definitely, I think the sky's the limit for Dennis and Felix. Both of them could easily not usually everything is very challenging, but they could be mainstays in the top 10. I mean, Dennis is already kind of there. Felix is even younger than him, which is outrageous. The way they keep their composure is the most impressive. I think the way they carry themselves, they're professional, they're calm, they're mature, um, and they have each other, which is important. You want to have that competitive spirit with someone who you respect and like and their compatriots, and that's going to be a really big factor in their development. Um, I, I see them being top 10, definitely. I see them winning it at least one major each. I don't, I'm not good at predicting these kind of career life paths, but, but the way they've played this, this Fortnite definitely uh, made it seem like they're, they're there. They're right there. Yeah, Felix will only be turning 21 um, in less than a month now. And, and the guy he shares a birthday with Roger Federer will be turning 40. So essentially double Felix's age. L- let's talk about the old man for a second. If we could um, you've met him before and spoken with him before. For Federer fans, it must be really tough seeing Djokovic join Nadal in equaling his Grand Slam haul. It's tough to assess Roger this year because he hasn't played so much. Um, But in listening to him talk to the press and in speaking to him myself this past week, 
it's really been tough for me to gauge what his short-term, what his long-term plans are going to be. I don't even know if he really has an idea quite yet. How much do you think he's got left in him and, and, and what else could there be to accomplish at this point as the realistic sort of conclusion that he might not be winning any more majors is likely sinking in over there? It does feel like things have changed the way he's speaking, the way, the way things are going. It does seem like things have really shifted. Part of it obviously is, is, is the age, but I just know that he, he said this before, he doesn't want to do a farewell tour. He doesn't want a whole season where he's saying goodbye to every week and it being so dramatic and like overdone um, like past players have done. So, you know, that he's going to kind of, he's, he's going to drop it at some point and just, just like, Smoke bomb is my theory. Like, um, like peace, I'm out of here. Yeah. And I thought he'd be at Wimbledon. So maybe, you know, maybe next Wimbledon, because this wasn't really a great exit. Like the way that the way that match went was shocking. So there's no way he was going to retire after that. But I don't know if he has another major left in him. Surely maybe a final. Like I, that seems possible. Like I've I've been burned before where I thought he was done and I was completely wrong. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say anything that is remotely gonna do that again. But it just, it, the vibe is different. You know, the way to say it, like the kids say it, the vibe, it feels, it feels different. Yeah. And I know you and Ben are both younger than me by a few years. So to me, I think back to Pete Sampras and how he went out to George Bastel in like the second round in his last Wimbledon. And people thought, oh my goodness, like, is, is he done? Is he going to call it a day? And he did hang on for a little while longer. And thank goodness, because he had that incredible run at the 2002 US Open. Um, not saying that Roger's going to go out like that, but of course he'd want to. And he was such a big fan of, of Pete Sampras as well. Uh, I'm just thinking about Pete Sampras, as, as you guys had mentioned earlier, you know, could Novak get 27 slams? And I'm thinking, my goodness, that's almost double what Pete Sampras had in his entire career. And that was considered like the, you know, that was the mark to break. Um, do previous champions get kind of not forgotten, but do their accomplishments get diminished because of what these three have done? Like I grew up a, a, a Becker and Edberg fan and, They've only got six slams now, but I thought they were the most amazing players back when I was a kid. So, but what effect are these three having on, on previous champions and legends of the sport? It's a good question. I think that what these three have done has set themselves apart from everyone else. I don't think it's possible to compare generations, even the, the Pete Agassi generation to today, which is why maybe it makes it still okay to appreciate what people have done in the past because it was in the past. It's, it almost feels like the same as like when technology changes and like modern age changes, like the, the, the way that we rate people and the way that we kind of expect greatness to be changes. So that's kind of how I see it is like, you can't really compare. Um, I don't know, like the 27 just seems crazy. They were stuck on 27 and I just can't get my head around that number. But for, for what I think is most interesting and most exciting about this year for Novak is the calendar year slam. I mean that if he does that, that is a career changing stat. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, he was kind of asked about the, the goat talk and uh, Djokovic has such confidence in his play. He, he said, I want to show this quote. I think I'm the best. I consider myself the best, whether or not I'm the greatest of all time. I leave that to other people. It's very difficult to compare eras. It's completely different conditions to compare, say 50 years ago to today. And of course he's, he's accurate in saying that it, it is har- hard to compare across generations, but he has so much self-belief at the same time in his game and believing he is the best. And well, he keeps proving it time and time again. Uh, you are listening to match point Canada, our guest this week, uh, Nina Pantic. And we have to ask uh, and discuss the women's side for me. It was also fantastic 
fantastic tournament and I thought kind of a solidifying one for Ash Barty winning the Grand Slam here. She now has 12 singles titles, four of them coming this season and two slam wins. And look, she's held the world number one spot actually since that 2019 French Open title, her first. And you know, is it time we treat her like a superstar? Because you look at the numbers, you look at the stats. She she is a tennis superstar. I could not be more complimentary of Ash Barty. Just the way that she handles herself, her personality, her character. Like she's so honest and real and hardworking and like selfless. This is somebody that like kids can look up to. And that's it's amazing to have her at the top of the game. Do I think she'd be superstar status? Absolutely. I mean, two majors puts you like, in contention for hall of fame like she's she's at that level she's won a doubles major um she's she's impeccable like every the way that she carries herself it's just so inspirational for for young people and for old people i mean everyone and, and there's something that you can't not love her the way she speaks as well about her team i mean that was an amazing i got goosebumps from when she like went up to her her box and she was crying and it was it was unbelievable and she was a junior grand slam champion at 15 at wimbledon so to win it 10 years later was kind of poetic uh, do I, I think she could be a superstar. I mean, I think she's a superstar. That's how I see it. I think it's all about obviously marketing and how, how fans react to her, but what's mm. not to like about Ash Barty. I mean, I, I can't think of a thing. Yeah. And you get the sense she is also just one of the most well-liked and respected players on tour. All the other players seem to just, uh, he preys upon her and just the way she carries herself, uh, the work ethic, all of it. Um, she defeats Karolina Pliskova in the final. I thought it was a great final three sets, six, three, six, seven, six, three. Pliskova someone, it felt like for the past couple of re- years, it's almost like we, we were placing all these high hopes on her finally breaking through, maybe winning a slam and she would falter early. She would exit in the first week. And now we've kind of reached that point. We were writing her off as a grand slam contender. And that's when she makes the run to the final. Is it maybe that she's just a better player when she's flying under the radar a little bit with not that much attention on her? She definitely came a little out of nowhere. She was having a really bad season. She talked about that a lot. And I mentioned our insides tool at Universal Tennis earlier. And she was at like a 1% odds of, of winning. So it's, right. that's, that's, that's pretty low. So no one really saw her coming. But the way that she plays, that flat kind of, she almost has like an old school way of hitting. It really suits her on, the, on grass if she's on. But she can be so off. And that's why she loses all these early matches. Because if those flat, crazy shots aren't going in, I mean, she, she can lose anyone. It, it, it feels that way. So I think she had, she had a hot streak and finally all the work that she's been putting in paid off because she was talking about how she had all these losses over it. I mean, she, the whole year has been a lot of early losses, but that doesn't mean she's bad at tennis. It was all about staying positive and having the right team around her, which she's done a very good job of. And seeing her tear up was also another goosebumps moment. I did not expect that from her. She says, oh, I never cry. I mean, it, it meant so much to her. Of course, it means a lot to her, but it was it was a very like heartwarming and heart wrenching moment I think watching her in the in the final and she had her chances in a way but then that third set slipped away so fast I don't think she felt like she you know lost the match and after having like a chance to win it was more like you actually got outplayed right I was happy to see in the post match press conference that she was pretty upbeat there were a lot of smiles so it didn't seem like she was taking it too hard in the aftermath fortunately but uh, yeah no one should ever count out someone at Wimbledon whose nickname is the ace queen. I mean, uh, so I'm, I'm surprised the odds were so low for her. Um, Want to switch a little bit in terms of what's coming up next now that the grass court season is just about done. Um, the Olympics are coming up. Um, Olympics that should have been last year, but we're finally going to get them. Although some players have already decided they're not going um, from the Canadian side. Denis Shapovalov's not going. 
Serena, of course, isn't taking the trip. Neither is her sister. And then Roger Federer seems pretty iffy. I wasn't getting strong vibes that he was going to go. And even Novak Djokovic in his post-match press conference today said kind of 50-50 at best because of information he's been hearing lately. Um, So what kind of field are we going to be seeing at these Olympic Games? Um, I guess likely to get some surprise champions or medalists, perhaps like a a Monica Pui. Um, What what do you think is, uh, is in the cards a few weeks from now in Tokyo? I mean, given tennis's relationship with the Olympics, it's not surprising to get kind of a, an assortment of players winning medals. It, it's very normal, even though this is a very weird year and a very unique situation. That's been pretty standard for us. Uh, you mentioned Monica Puig. There's been different medalists that are surprises. Draws kind of always seem to be missing big names. Um, it's unfortunate because for, for me as an athlete, as a former athlete, the Olympics are like, I mean, the Mecca, like that is where you want to be. I understand this year is going to be very different. There's a chance of there being you know, the spectators are different. The village will be different. Everything will be super different. And that's hard. But as someone who, who played tennis and played a sport, like the Olympics are everything just to be an Olympian in any capacity is so incredible. So I'm surprised uh, mostly by Serena because I thought this was going to be a big, a big deal for her. Uh, Federer, I think if he was to, to go, he could be in medal contention for sure. So like, it seems like it would be a no brainer to try and get a gold medal, you know, it, it seems like it'd be a good chance if Novak and Nadal aren't there. I mean, this is, this is his opportunity. Why not take it? It's not, it's not embarrassing to go to the Olympics this year. That's, I, I know that people are all dropping out and that, that's hard, but it's still such an honor. I agree. I agree with you. I would, you know, if I was ever playing at that level, I think I would prioritize the Olympics almost over anything else because it's only a once every four years, or in this case, every five years um, type of experience. You're only you know, at best going to get maybe three or four, you know, unless you're a Danny Nestor who gets six of them. But uh, for the most part, it's, uh, it's hard to, to experience that more than, than one time. And um, a lot of different variables, right? You've got the, the travel going to Tokyo, the time change, switching surfaces. It's a best of three now for the men. That's different too, from just having the best of five. Um, so I think all that will contribute to perhaps some interesting results too. And I look forward to that because we can't just have the big three winning all these slams. It'd be nice to see some, some different names in there. Um, anything else on your radar for either the summer swing or into the fall or storylines that you're chasing or following that are of interest um, for what's uh, lying ahead here? I mean, I will add on the Olympics front, that is really fun to see, you know, somebody else other than the big three. That's a, that's a good point. Because Wimbledon women's draw, you felt like it was a bit more open. And the man, you're like, oh, well, Novak is, is obviously going to win this. So it's, a, it's, it's, you kind of love the big three, but you love having variety. Um, I'm actually going to Newport next week. So I'm excited to go that, you know, grass season is so short and it's pretty much over, but you get this like one little adorable tournament. I'm obsessed with the Hall of Fame. So for me, it's a, it's an honor to get to go there and it's, such a unique place in like Newport, Rhode Island. Um, there's a few great players going to be there, of course, tons of Americans, but um, that's on my immediate radar. The U.S. Open, of course, is a huge one. I'm based in New York and, and that's going to be about Novak. I mean, I can't even imagine the, the atmosphere if he makes the final, if that's all going to happen. That storyline is going to be outrageous. I remember Serena, I think it was 2015, um, when she was kind of in the contention for that at the U.S. Open to win and like it, it fell apart. So it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. We can't, uh, we can't wait to watch the U S open. Um, as you said, so many storylines, I think Serena is still a storyline giving that chase for Margaret court. Obviously things went wrong at Wimbledon losing, uh, well, getting injured first round, but, uh, she's still on my radar as a storyline at least. And, uh, with the Olympics coming up uh, a lot to follow, uh, Nina, thanks so much for, for joining us this week and recapping the Wimbledon uh, grass court action. We appreciate your insights. 
It's been so fun chatting with you guys. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Nina. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. You can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. Find us on Instagram, Matchpoint Canada. And we're also on YouTube and Facebook as well. And, uh, you know, we've talked about Goran Ivanisevic being coach of Novak Djokovic and telling how much praise, obviously, he heaped on Novak afterwards. Um, some striking words. Of course, he won this tournament in a memorable fashion almost 20 years ago and uh, basically said the level of Novak when he's at his peak, can anybody stop him? He believes the answer is no. Yeah. I mean, Goran said, and it's, it's, you can't argue with it. He said, even when he's not playing his best tennis, he wins. When he plays his best tennis, it's impossible to beat him. And after (laughs) what we just saw, I mean, he wasn't playing his best tennis against uh, Chapo, uh, Mm -hmm. but you also have to give Dennis credit because Dennis played that first set in particular was just unreal how he was how he was going along there and you know Nina Pantic said to us that she saw or she thought for a moment hey Dennis could win this whole thing and I was starting to get those those vibes as well um and yet even though Dennis led late in that first set Novak found a way and on the key points and in the tie break and, and again against Berrettini we saw it they both came out to me feeling kind of nervous and fidgety uh Berrettini especially uh, as Novak went up early uh, and credit to the Italian for getting back in it and, and taking that first set. But then there's just that inability to go any further because Novak is just, he's just Novak. I mean, this guy is never out and he didn't have to face an 0-2 set deficit like he did twice at the French Open. He didn't have to face match points against him like he get, did against Federer two years ago in his last win there. Um, the guy has just amazed me so much in particular over the course of this year and what he's done and how, yeah, it felt like he was really trailing Rafa and Roger by quite a bit. And now, boom, he's tied with them at 20 slams apiece. Yeah, it's it's astonishing if you think about when Roger Federer had 16 grand slams, Novak Djokovic had one being a 15 slam gap for him to catch catch that and and win 19 uh additional ones well Federer has added four which is impressive in its own right this is not a knock on Roger Federer I should be very clear it's it's more just the dominance that he's exhibited for the better part of over a decade right now and uh just touching on that Denis Shapovalov Djokovic semi-final um because I was impressed there. And um, uh, I, I've never seen Dennis really so upset by a loss. He was emotional, leaving the court uh, in tears. And the reason he was so, I think, distraught about the loss is because he said this is the first time, like, out of the seven times he had played Djokovic where he felt I was there and I could have won this thing. But you, you just see the unrelenting nature of Djokovic. Even he's down 5-4, Shapovalov serving for the first set. It's, it's 30-all, and Djokovic just plays the extra ball, the extra ball, and he's going to force you into another tough shot to try and close out points. And uh, Djokovic, uh, you know, I, th- I think he got under Shapovalov's skin a little bit when he stole that first set. So recovering from that was... Quite difficult. He's Dennis still played great in sets two and three, but it's these the big points, small margins where Novak is always coming out on top. Part of that is experience, and part of that is just he's a mental giant. Yeah, I mean, there's no better way to put it. You you said it right there, and I'm going to be interested to see now what happens next. I'm not really getting the vibe he's going to end up going to Tokyo. I hope I'm wrong because I'd love to see him go for that gold medal and and potentially complete the the golden slam sort of like uh, Steffi Graf did back in 1988. 
but I, I get mm-hmm. the vibe that it, it's, it's a whole lot of effort to get there. And then when you come back, how does that affect what's coming next when you get back to a best three out of five at the U.S. Open just a few weeks after that? And I think for him, the calendar slam is, is what's most important. And uh, as much as it must be nice to tie Roger and Rafa, imagine what it will feel like to go one further and, and hold that record all to yourself. Yeah, it would be extraordinary if he picks up 21 at, at the U.S. Open in New York, still a long ways away. And uh, if you were to pick kind of one slam, obviously French Open's been dominated by Rafa before Novak took it this year. But I would say the U.S. Open is the other of the three where Novak has been somewhat vulnerable where it just has felt like things have gone wrong in the past. We look at what happened last year, the fiasco with the lineswoman and hitting an errant ball by mistake. Um, 2019 uh, losing out there with an injury and going down to Stan Favrenka 2016 finals there. So I, I don't think this is a foregone conclusion, which some people are treating it to be. I, I think he would be a bit more vulnerable at the U S open, but he has to be uh, has to be the favorite. Yeah, and it's going to be a different level of nerves. I mean, he admitted today to us in post-match press that, yeah, he was nervous. And, uh, I mean, of course you're going to be nervous. How could you not be? He, even mm-hmm. though he seems like he's got ice running through his veins, of course, he's human just like us. And so that level of pressure, internal pressure, I don't even know if – I don't even think it's the pressure others might be putting on. I think it comes from within with Novak. Yeah. And, and, yeah, how does he manage that? And, and I think last year at the U.S. Open, it was going to be his tournament to take as well if he hadn't uh, had that unfortunate outburst. And, you know, he seemed to be carrying a lot of anger with him last year at the U.S. Open. And, and hopefully this year he's coming in in a, in a better mindset, more positive mindset. And uh, how could you not when you've got the three majors that have been played so far this year? So uh, very much looking forward to that. And, um, and, and also looking forward to how does Dennis now progress from this career-defining moment? How does Felix Ogialiassime, um, you know, uh, grow from his first major quarterfinal those two guys really brought it for Canada and uh, and really led our Canadian contingency at Wimbledon. Yeah, yeah, both uh, phenomenal performances. And uh, as of now, Denis Shapovalov moving up to number 10 in the rankings, which is his career high that he set last year. But getting back at that spot, I think, is fantastic. And Felix Ogialiassi making a nice jump to number 15, which is a new career high for them. So they're, they're making inroads. I'm so glad we're having this conversation because a month ago we were talking about talking about them stagnating. So it's a very different conversation right now compared to, you know, when we had Dennis Shapovalov miss Roland Garros and Felix suffer through a tough clay court season, they rebounded so incredibly well, both played phenomenal Wimbledons. And uh, I think a hard court swing will do both of them good. Um, for Shapovalov, obviously must have great memories of playing Rogers Cup, which is now National Bank Open four years ago, making a semifinal run. Felix, I think we can see plenty from him uh, in this in the summertime. And then for Oji Aliasim, he is also scheduled to go to Tokyo. So I hope he still gets that opportunity. I think him and Vashik would make an awesome doubles team. And I think there's a, going to be quite an opening for a run at a medal if we do have all these withdrawals, as we've talked about. Yeah, I'm feeling that medal hype as well for Canada. And, uh, you know, you and I spoke with pretty much all the Canadians at the tournament, and we've Mm -hmm. got some great audio saved up in terms of how they feel about going to the Olympics, what it means representing Canada. So we definitely look forward to sharing that with our listeners in the weeks ahead. Um, Just to touch on a few other Canadian results at, at Wimbledon, it was disappointing on the women's side as Bianca Andrescu went out really easily against Elise Cornet, as well as Leila Annie Fernandez, perhaps not as shockingly, but uh, she went down also in the first round to Yelena Ostapenko. 
Um, so for those two, definitely a forgettable tournament, unfortunately. And then in doubles, it was very uh, difficult to see Sharon Fishman have to withdraw because I would have given Sharon a good chance of going deep with Juliana almost the way those two mm -hmm. have been playing this year. But she was feeling something in her shoulder that she had felt earlier this year in Australia, wanted to play it safe. And the doctors told her um, best to stop now if your goal is to go to the Olympics and be able to compete there. So she made that strategic move, which was obviously, and we're hoping, uh, beneficial for her in the weeks to come. Yeah, yeah, I think certainly the right decision there. And uh, Gabby Dabrowski, uh, women's doubles didn't go as planned with uh, Caroline Garcia. They lost in the first round. Uh, and her, Maddie Pavage, did win a couple of matches in mixed doubles before losing in quite a thrilling quarterfinal, actually, to the ninth seeds, 9-7 uh, in the third set. So not a bad side of the tournament for the mixed doubles draw. And, and Gabby is on schedule to go to Tokyo. So I'm looking forward uh, for that opportunity for her. Um, looking forward for Bianca Andrescu to get back on the hard courts as well, I should say it was it was a trying grass court season we basically missed the clay court season essentially because of that positive covid test and you know had that long extended break so i i'm hoping her schedule gets back to some sense of normalcy and consistency of just playing tournaments again and uh, she'll be back on her i think favorite surface for the summer and i'm interested to see who she ends up choosing at some point whether it's this summer or later in the year as a permanent coach to replace Sylvain Bruno. Um, I don't think someone of her age uh, is going to go it alone at this point in their career. So it'll be interesting to see. I would imagine she's getting all sorts of people sending her messages, knocking on the door, uh, offering their services who wouldn't want to, uh, you know, attach themselves to a player of her caliber who's already proven so much in, in such a short amount of time. But uh, yeah, I think the hard courts, I mean, just as we saw, and you mentioned with Felix and Dennis, how the grass court season really turned things around for them. Hopefully the same holds true with Bianca when she hits uh, the hard courts again. Yeah, that's certainly the hope. Um, just for the upcoming week, now that we're um, wrapping up the grass, we should mention we have the Hall of Fame Championships in Newport, and that will be a spot where Goran Ivanisevic and Conchita Martinez will be inducted to the Tennis Hall of Fame. Pretty quiet week on the ATP and WTA side. A couple clay court events in Hamburg and Stad on the ATP side, and then WTA will have a three, t two, three pardon me, 250 events, Hungary, Prague, and Lausanne as well. I wanted to get to our on running promotion and uh, giveaway. This is our final shoe in the series of the on running uh, Roger Federer shoes. This is being the RF advantage shoe. And I believe we had 31 entries uh, for this latest contest giveaway. So um, we can move on to that draw right now, if that's okay with you. That's great. I put 20 entries in myself under pseudonyms and uh, <laughs> aliases. So I hope that, you know, nobody's too upset if they see me walking around in one of these pairs down the road. But uh, before you get to the draw, and we are excited uh, for this uh, again, thanks to on running for doing this with us, partnering mm -hmm. for three shoes. And uh, as they have recently announced that the, the Roger pro, the shoe that Roger actually uses on the court, is going to be uh, mass produced and available at some point in the future. Fingers crossed that we can get our hands on a pair as well for one of our listeners and, and Fed fans down the road. Yes, that is the hope. I have the draw set up here. I, I found a much easier system than what you did from last time, Mike, which was handwriting every name. I, I plugged it into an online system, which is going to randomize and generate a name for it us. It felt so legit to me, though, writing them out and like an old school <laughs> yeah. draw. And that highlights, I think, just the age gap between you and me, I guess. Perhaps, perhaps. All right, we are ready to go. Um, here's your proverbial drum roll as we randomly select and our winner of the advantage rf shoe is christina leist 
is our winner of the shoe. So Christina Lice, I'd have to double check if she uh, submitted her entry via Instagram or was it Twitter? Um, it was Instagram. So she entered via there. Um, so Christina, congratulations. You have won the advantage. She will send you a message on Instagram and uh, get those out to you. Uh, and that so wraps, congratulations. That wraps our Wimbledon coverage, man. That's our first time you and I ever getting accredited to Wimbledon. I should also say it's the first time we've ever applied because being that it was virtual for us, it allowed us to, to sort of go. And uh, what a cool experience to cover the tournament that, I mean, for me, it was the one I grew up with. So it was a real kick. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, such a treat, especially when you start getting uh, used to the habit of popping in these press conferences and and start building a rapport with some of these athletes. And I, I should note, I actually shared on my social media on my page. Uh, I asked the first question to Denis Shapovalov after he lost to Novak Djokovic. And uh, I sort of commented on, the first two sets uh, sort of teetering on a couple of points and that it felt so close. And uh, he gave me some necessary kind of shade right back. And he was like, well, the third set was close too." And I was like, yeah, you're, you're right, Dennis. It was, it was, I, I, and, like that. Uh, I thought I that like was kind that. of a funny moment. I think I ticked him off just a little bit, but. Well, he was also feeling a little bit uh, fragile and vulnerable and, and upset <laughs> exactly. of course. So I wouldn't take that personally. And to be no. fair, even Novak mentioned that the first two sets, Dennis was really playing at, at a better level. So right. I, I think your observation was, was on point and not obviously intended as a slight. I appreciate um, that. For, for me, my big uh, sort of uh, highlight was uh, getting to ask Roger Federer. Um, I believe it was the first question of his pre-tournament press conference. Mm. And, uh, you know, not that I'm a Fed fan so much as just, hey, he's got, you know, a heck of a ton of Wimbledons under his belt. And who knows if this is his last one. So to say that I was able to get in a question to Roger at Wimbledon was, um, was pretty neat for me. And um, any other cool moments for you or things that stood out from, from covering it? Um, uh, apart from the coverage, um, Wimbledon has, has such a tremendous work in terms of access to photo archives, video, you can, you can kind of scroll through their website and you get the sense of how prestigious this event is and the sense of how much they care about their history and tradition. And I kind of love that, to be honest. Um, it's the oldest tournament in the world. They know how cool they are in that sense. And if you really want to go kind of stat diving and digging in deep for, for old numbers, it's, it's all available in the records for you. Yeah, the media access was pretty cool online. I was totally geeking out going through old video footage. I found like a, an hour long tribute video to Stefan Edberg just from his Wimbledon career. And I'm like halfway through it right now, right now on uh, the 1988 final against Becker. And I'm just loving it because Amazing. this was like, I'm feeling like a kid again as I watch it. This is what hooked me. You know, the bad 80s hair, the terrible outfits, the short shorts, um, and the serve and volleying most, most impressively because my goodness, those courts took a beating up near the net back in the day. And you really see it in those old highlights. So I think that's going to keep me busy for the next couple of weeks, just going through old Wimbledon footage. And oh, yeah. uh, what, what a treat it was. And it was uh, great doing it with you, man. And uh, one of these years we'll be there in person. I have no doubt. Yes, that's definitely on the bucket list. We will make it happen. Uh, thanks to your listeners for following along with all the coverage over the last couple of weeks. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time. 